Good afternoon. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Cole and I are so excited to come back from this Christmas break. And uh, Cole, how was your Christmas? It was good. I watched some movies and some TV. What'd you do? I spent a lot of time with my family, a lot of downtime, which is exactly what I needed. Oh, that's what you're supposed to do for Christmas. Right. By the time I go see Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood this weekend, it'll be a full week since I've been to the movies, (gasps) Cole. A whole week, Jeffrey. I've been watching. I've been catching up on some of the Netflix ones. Right, uh, uh-huh. I watched Marriage Story over oh, the Christmas yeah. break, which is Noah Baumbach's very Oscar-y, very mm-hmm. acty. It's the kind of thing that Hollywood is gonna love, and will definitely get Oscar love, just because. It's about the conflict between two people like Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson get to act with a capital yeah. A against each other for the whole movie. And it's about L.A. versus New York and theater mm. people versus movie people. And it's it's just very like the Academy will love it. I'm okay. sure. Well, you'll forgive us for starting out on a tangent, but Cole and I are just having a difficult time coming back from Christmas break. (laughs) This is Screen Cleaning, the show on BYU Radio where we shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in the entertainment industry. We do that through movie reviews. We've got one coming up here in just a bit. We do that by having all sorts of brackets, movie recommendations that we make. And then we also do that by sharing with you the very best in entertainment news. And that's how we usually start the program. Right. So this one tickled my funny bone, Cole. And when I started to tell you about it, you gave me a knowing nod. So I think you kind of had a similar reaction. Yes. When you saw, well, first of all, I should I should preface this by saying that Martin Scorsese has been in the news a lot lately, not only for his uh, Oscar buzzy movie that's on Netflix, on The Netflix, Irishman, The Irishman, but which also I did not find three hours on my Christmas to watch, okay. but is still three and a half somewhere hours. on my list. But uh, he's also in the news because he's been ruffling a lot of feathers with some of the comments he's been making about superhero movies. Which, to be fair. Mm-hmm. He was baited. Like, who asking the question first of Martin Scorsese really thought he was going to say, oh, yeah, those sure. those pictures with the, the superheroes and the... Yeah, he's... We know what he probably thinks, but... But we've gotten a lot of mileage out of Martin Scorsese hating on popular movies. Sure. To paraphrase some of the the quotes that could probably even be taken out of context, <laughs> he has said that superhero movies are not cinema. Right. He's tried them. They're not cinema. And uh, people have been giving him a hard time for this. And chief among those would be his own daughter on <laughs> Christmas Day yep. has the gall and great sense of humor to wrap his Christmas presents in Marvel Comics packaging. Love it, Cole. When does Martin Scorsese get tired of all of this as well and just come out and say, you know what? I did. I did actually love them. They're all fantastic. Yes. (laughs) Just to get us all off his back. I'm sure he's a good sport about it, and (laughs) what a genius move by his daughter. So, Cole, I mean, not a ton of news to talk about from over the Christmas break, but there is a movie that kind of snuck into theaters on Christmas Day, and I understand you want to talk about it. I mean, yeah, Christmas is a huge release 
weekend, but just like we talked about Fourth of July earlier this year, it happened in the middle of the week. So we're right. talking about five and six day weekends, which is actually an entire week for any of those that you know know what a calendar looks like. <laughs> Star Wars releases around Christmas time, and it of course took home the top box office prize. Christmas Day alone, Jeffrey. $32 million for Star Whoa. Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, which we will be going into a little bit more depth on. Let's just say that was more today. than I made last year. Uh, $32 Yeah, million. by about $32 million for me. Yeah. <laughs> and some change. Jumanji The Next Level comes in second on the Christmas day, but third place on Wait the- a minute, Cole. An even better way to put it. Between Star Wars... Uh, and my salary, we made $32 million. There you go. That's an average of like 16 per, right? <laughs> yes. I think I was pulling my weight. Third place on the day, though, was a brand new release for the holiday, and that was Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. Really? And How much did that one make? It made $6 million, which That's is pretty good. modest, but considering it beat out Uncut Gems, also the new and Oscar buzzy, it's Adam Sandler's uh, new movie, but not Not two an things Adam you would Sandler. ever think to say in the same sentence. Yeah, Oscars okay. and, and Adam Sandler. Not your typical Adam Sandler if you're looking for something to watch sure. still. Uh, Spies in Disguise, which I believe that you're... How much did that make? Gonna watch. Yes. I don't know if you're looking forward to it. I'm taking my kids to it. All I, right. Give me a bucket of popcorn and my kids and I'll be pleased as punch. $4.7 million on oh. the day. And it's a new... It was new for the weekend as well. It edged out Frozen 2 in its, what, third or fourth week. Made also around $4 million. Take that, Frozen 2. <laughs> Uh-huh. But Frozen 2 is going cold. Sorry. I I was expecting a pun a little bit early. You you delivered though, Jeff, as you always do. Now, I got to see Little Women though a little bit earlier. I've been waiting for it to come out to give the review and I really really enjoyed it. This is coming from someone that has never read the book, cool. is not familiar with any of these characters before. Um, hadn't seen the Christian Bale, Winona Ryder, everyone and keep else in, in mind, it from this the nineties. Coming from a man that had no interest in seeing it, he None. saw the trailer and was like, "Meh." Yep. So I'm really surprised and very excited to hear you say this. Excellent, excellent filmmaking. Wow. It, it made me feel a little bit like the way Downton Abbey made me feel, where I didn't really know anything about it beforehand, but it was enjoyable to watch. But better, right? So Downton Abbey really did feel kind of just like a TV show on the screen, whereas sure. Little Women felt built for this. As as cinematic as you can make people sitting around and talking feel, Greta Gerwig captured that, right? Not every movie experience that's meant to be seen on the biggest possible screen needs to have CGI and, and loud noises and, yeah. and bing, bang, boom. Little Women felt commanding on the screen even with just four people four four girls and their interactions with each other and the way they grow with their family and how they grow up through the years that's fantastic and My... I, I now understand why it's such a classic of the literary canon i understand why it's there and why it's it's so revered and why people love it so that movie, too, is getting some awards buzz. do you think it's it warranted should. yeah greta gerwig should definitely be in the conversation for Best Director, it will wow. get Best Adapted Screenplay, and Saoirse Ronan will probably be up for Best Actress, although I'm not sure if she's my favorite so far. She was fantastic, but like there's there's been some other strong acting performances. Interesting. And that is sure to come up again whenever we do our Oscars episode. And, uh, man, this is going to be a really tough year, a very competitive year, especially for, I think, lead actor and lead actress. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, Cole... I am also excited about today's show because, as you know, we are so close to ending out or finishing up a decade. The 2010s, 
the end is in in sight, and we have so many movies that came out over the last 10 years. How could we possibly choose which ones over the last 10 years were our favorite? I don't know how, but we certainly tried. We'll try, and we will share with you some of our favorites over the last 10 years when we return here on Screen Clean. Joe is a lost cause. So you are your family's hope now. I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Jeff, you've got a friend in me, and I know that it's been a little bit more than a decade since the first Toy Story came out, but it was the start of the decade when the trilogy completed. My goodness, Cole. I love that song, and I love this choice. Why did you choose Toy Story 3 as one of your favorite, five favorite movies of the decade? Of the whole decade, because of the way it wrapped around and perfectly completed a trilogy, despite the fact that we got a fourth one also during the course (laughs) of this decade. But at the time, the way each one of these movies was able to stand alone and the way that this one really brought them all to a satisfying conclusion, and you felt like the toys were able to move on and Andy was able to move on as well, and we got a heartfelt Goodbye between the two of them. Uh, it was it was a perfect way to end the trilogy. Over the next few minutes here, Cole and I are going to we we've scoured the internet, we've scoured our brains to try to come up with our five favorite movies over the last decade, which is much more difficult of a task to do than you would think. Right, Turns out Cole? there's like 300 movies released every year and right. there were 10 years in this decade as I, they normally are. I started out with a list that included 26 movies and I somehow whittled that down to five favorites and five honorable mentions. But uh, I think it's very fitting that my first pick that I'm going to share be first because it is also Toy Story 3 <gasps> from 2010. Jeffrey! So, Cole, you really do have a friend in me. We talk about how much we disagree (laughs) on this program, and that's our shtick most of the time. There are certain movies that come out every once in a while that unite even the most fiercest of opposition when it comes to movie opinion. And Toy Story 3 is one of them. And it, it almost seems unfair to separate this movie from the other two that come before it. But since it is the only one that came out in this last decade... We can't not put a Toy Story movie on there, right, And Cole? to me, this is my favorite of all three of the Toy Stories. I I'm, might agree with you I'm there, too. I'm happy with that. I think each one got better as we went on, culminating mm-hmm. with 2010's Toy Story 3. Fun fact, I, I mentioned I watched uh, Marriage Story. Randy Newman uh, took care of the score really? for that movie. Interesting. A very heavy movie and a very... Actually, you know, uh, it's interesting that we might dismiss Toy Story 3 as a light family a friendly kids uh, movie yeah. when out of all of the Pixar movies ever made this and maybe up probably have the heaviest most adult moments in any of the Pixar movies I've seen oh the first time I remember crying at the theater was Toy Story 3 yeah are you talking about the passing of the baton or are you talking about the embracing death scene? The embracing okay. death scene, mostly. <laughs> that was heavy for a kid's movie. You talk about having honorable mentions. I, I tried to rack my brain to find where those other kids' animated movies were that mm-hmm. I loved in the decade. But 
but really, I love that Toy Story 3 is one of my favorites because to me it represents also the end of Pixar's great run of greatness. Okay. Starting with 2010, there's not a Pixar movie that I would put even close to an honorable mentions, top 50 or whatever you want to say for the whole decade. If we went back a couple years up and Wally and Ratatouille, all fantastic movies. But since then, Wreck-It Ralph and Tangled maybe hmm. you know, creep into honorable mention territory, but nothing from Pixar. Okay. Well, in in the kind of kid, family-friendly realm, my honorable mention would be a Disney film that was actually my favorite movie of last year. It's a movie that I saw four times in the movie theaters, which is something I've only done one other time way back in the, gosh, it must have been 99-ish when As Good As It Gets came out. <laughs> that was a movie I fell in love with when that came out. Certainly not family-friendly, but Mary Poppins Returns is, mm-hmm. and uh, that would be my honorable mention there. 2018, just last year. Another Disney movie, we agree, was fantastic. Yes. So, okay, Cole, I when I looked at my list, I realized that over the last decade, this just happened by chance. Between my honorable mentions and my favorites, there's only one year that was not recognized or that did not have a pick on the list. And I'm wondering if you have anything from the year 2012. Well, certainly not the movie 2012, which came out during the decade. Let's see. Let me look down my list. I actually don't either. There were a couple movies that I love. I, I've talked about Chronicle on the program being a fantastic, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. superhero story, and also uh, my favorite found footage movie that also kind of was a theme throughout the decade. Um, Cabin in the Woods is an R-rated horror comedy kind of thing that also came out that year. But mm-hmm. you're right, a lull in the decade, I think, for 2012. Interesting. So my next favorite in the decade didn't come until 2014. And this might not be the only movie that uh, is in 2014 that we're going to talk about, Cole. But the first of those is, surprise, surprise, another kids movie. However, I wouldn't necessarily categorize it as a kids movie because it works so well as a straight comedy. This is my favorite comedy of this decade. And uh, any, any, you want to take a stab on what it might be, Cole? I think I might know. You said 2014? Yes. Did this movie have some very less funny follow-ups to it? Yes. Sequels, spin-offs? Yes, and it was robbed at the Academy Awards in a year where it should have won the Best Animated Feature Award. It wasn't even nominated. But in the end, everything really was awesome because yes. the Lego movie was such a good movie. The Lego movie was, in my opinion, the best comedy in the 2010s, and it came out in 2014. It it requires repeat viewing because the jokes come at you so fast and furious that you really have to watch it again to appreciate all of the hard work that went into the animation, all of the genius bits that went into the script – Something that you don't most of the time, with few exceptions, something you can't count on going into a kid's movie is having a really funny, solid script with really energizing music that is appealing to everybody that goes to see this. 
This is, is a kids' pick. movie that wasn't just for kids. Right. My next pick is kind of an adulter movie, but it's my funniest movie of the decade as well, and it appeals to my kind of comedy. I am a sucker for breaking the fourth wall. When you can be trying to explain a serious concept and then just stop for a second, stare at the camera, and say, hey, you viewer. Hmm. We're talking to you for a second, and you make a joke out of that. I, I love it. I, Tanya, The Laundromat on Netflix this year, uh, A Futile and Stupid Gesture on Netflix last hmm. year, all kind of employ that comedy, but they're all trying to copy the movie that did it perfectly from a director that had some of the funniest movies from the 2000s decade. It was Adam McKay's The Big Short. Mm, Okay. Now, what is this movie about again, Cole? Well, it's about the 2008 financial crisis in the United States and the banks and the financial world that came from it, which, of course, lends itself to the funniest movie of the decade. It's Uh, the way that he tackled it and and the way that he was able to not only teach people and kind of get you knowing what it was that caused this, uh, but also making a joke out of it and, you know, getting us to know some real characters while taking some creative license. Again, an adult movie, just a ton of stinking language. If you can find it edited, uh, the language is really the only thing inappropriate about the whole movie. And I think that it it works just so well still. One thing I'll say about this, Cole, is that as far as movies with talking points, this movie is through the roof. Scores points in in those regards through the roof. Because the entire time, my wife and I... Could not understand what we were watching, so we kept pressing. We kept pressing pause, and I'm I I'm not envious of anybody that saw it in the theaters because they wouldn't have had this luxury. But we pressed pause so many times during this film to try to talk to each other about what digest. Yeah, digest what we were seeing. Try to understand, make sense of what we were seeing. The movie itself hits pause on you a couple of times when they get too deep. Right. Like I said, they stop, they look at the camera, and they try to explain heavy concepts like subprime loans and and everything else that I don't. I'm a radio person, not a accountant. Yeah. But I feel like I understood it a little bit better because of the way the movie walks you through it in a humorous way. An honorable mention that was not on my list, but now that you brought up this movie, I have to mention a, an Adam McKay movie that took me by surprise and that would certainly almost be on my list of funniest or uh, best comedies of the decade, The Other Guys, which also came out in 2010. The, yeah, the beginning of the decade. That's right. Yes. it's It was, I believe, the first time we got to see Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell together and Probably the only funny outing that those two have had. Are you together. disparaging Daddy's Home and Daddy's Home Two, Jeffrey? I it's it's Christmas. It's the Christmas season <laughs> and the New Year season. Cole, I would never do that. Okay, good. But I will say that this is the only funny one. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so another movie that I want to mention that uh, came out in 2014 is a bit of a cheat, Cole. Because this spot I gave to two films mm. by the same filmmaker. Okay. And you and I have talked about before how Toy Story is the type of trilogy. And by the way, if you want to hear more about how Cole and I feel about the Toy Story trilogy. Spoiler, we love it. Check out our our uh, trilogy bracket show that we just did a few weeks back. You can download it on our podcast. You can stream it on byuradio.org. And uh, it is a hoot. And see if you agree with us or not. And feel free to send us an email. (laughs) However, this is another – this was not a trilogy. They're two films that are completely different from each other. Same filmmaker, though. However, 
Just like with the Toy Story movies, every time I watch one of these films, I can't decide which one I like better. And so because it's the same filmmaker, same decade, and because I love them both so much, I decided to give this slot to 2014's Whiplash and 2016's La La Land. Damien Chazelle. Oh, shoot. That's right. Damien Chazelle, the youngest director to ever win Best Director for La La Land. Whiplash is a film that is not going to leave you with the warm fuzzies. No. Uh, We've left that territory now. Right. However, it is a powerful powerhouse of a movie. J.K. Simmons won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in La La Land. Emma Stone won the award for Best Actress. These are just two very powerful films that will leave you talking, that will have an impact on you, whether for good or for bad. Whiplash probably more for the bad. (laughs) Uh, But La La Land, I'm convinced, had it not ended the way it did, which ruffled the feathers of a lot of people that thought they were just going in to see this romantic comedy, uh, I'm convinced that if Damien Chazelle did not end La La Land the way that he did end it, you would not be talking about it afterwards. That is my opinion. I mean, it was Casablanca E the whole way through. I'm not sure how it could have ended anywhere else. <laughs> I thought you were going to tackle another filmmaker that I think made his best movie in 2014, and that is Wes Anderson. The Grand Budapest Hotel was 2014's best movie in my mind, or, or very, very close. He also had Moonrise Kingdom and Isle of Dogs during this decade, um, a really great filmmaker that, that had a good decade. Cole? I'm going to be honest with you. When I'd mentioned that I had 26 films to start out with, that was one of those 26 films. Not surprised. The Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, my my wife has seen two other Wes Anderson films. She hated both of them, including <laughs> The Fantastic Mr. Fox, or yes. just Fantastic Mr. Fox, yeah, yeah, yeah. as well as Moonrise Kingdom, the <laughs> other one that you just mentioned. However, she absolutely loved... Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. I think it was wacky enough, and the but cast was likable enough. enough. It's his most accessible movie. I've certainly, said often. certainly. Before yeah. you dive into Bottle Rocket and and the, the Rushmore and those, you know, the the Darjeeling Limited, tackle Grand Budapest Hotel first. See if that's an introduction to the style you want. Then go from there. Absolutely. Again, also rated R. Uh, but uh, you know, if there's a way you can watch it edited, definitely check it out. You mentioned La La Land and romance, and my next is another melancholic romance. It's my favorite movie from 2013, and it is Spike Jones's Her, starring ah. Scarlett Johansson's voice, at least, and Joaquin Phoenix. Okay. This is a story that's set in the not-too-distant future, where everything looks just slightly in the direction that maybe Spike Jones thinks that we're headed, where people are even more obsessed with their phones sure. or technology or being connected in that world to the point where we have come up with an artificial intelligence. And Joaquin Phoenix starts an actual romantic relationship with this artificial intelligence that's basically the Siri on his phone. 
eventually the artificial intelligences, including the Scarlett Johansson one, become smarter and smarter and smarter until they pass that singularity, that point where the artificial intelligences that we create become more intelligent uh, and start creating their own intelligences. It's a common like robot theme and, and trope that's used. Uh, but here it's used to kind of symbolize how in relationships, sometimes one partner moves past another or they just grow apart over time. It ends on a very sad note, but it lets us know more about our humanity, I think, than a movie just between two people might have. I, I think her is an absolutely beautiful romance and and a beautiful entry into the decade. 2013 was another favorite year of mine, Cole, because even though this didn't crack my favorites, it just barely is in my honorable mentions. It's a film that completely floored me, that surprised me. And for a movie as violent and dark as it was, it made me think of The Wizard of Oz. So The Wizard of Oz, don't get me wrong, one of the greatest movies ever made. I, it's aged incredibly well. This is kind of the action alternative to The Wizard of Oz. And it's a film that, again, if you can watch it edited, that's how I would recommend watching it. And uh, it's a film called Snowpiercer. Now, this is a film, like I said, that reminds me of The Wizard of Oz because it has this character who is trying to basically get to the end of this train through the course of this movie. And whoever gets to the end of the train, they get to live this life of luxury. And there is a wizard of sorts. And uh, to say much more than that would be spoiling too much of a good thing. So suffice it to say, Snowpiercer was my honorable mention for 2013. So Snowpiercer is directed by Bong Joon-ho. He directed Parasite this He's year. He's having a big year. Just a wild and crazy movie. But but Snowpiercer and The Host are both among South Korea's highest grossing movies ever. I've got another South Korean entry for you. This okay. one in Korean as well. It's a oh, subtitle. Oh, I know what it is. Horror Action okay. Zombie And it's PG-13. That's PG-13. Wow. Train to Busan is one of my favorite movies that came out this decade it's it's a less serious horror now like i mentioned cabin in the woods earlier as a favorite from 2012 i think it follows from 2014 is the best pure horror of the decade but when i just look at how how i enjoy horror as a genre and the way they use monsters it was trained to busan that was my favorite of all the 2010s interesting This has been a really good decade for action movies, Cole. Like a really, really good year. I mean, if you just look at Tom Cruise and what he's done in the 2010s, we could almost fill up a list with his movies right there. Edge of Tomorrow, one of my personal favorites. Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, he did three different Mission Impossible movies that were all really good. And he even did a couple of films that I had no expectations for and I kind of enjoyed, like Oblivion and uh, the other one that he did, Jack Reacher. but I know that you're not a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise, but ah. critics agree that that franchise got good during the 2010s as well mm-hmm. when Fast Five came yeah. out and, and some of the films since then. Yes, and I should mention, though, out of all those Tom Cruise movies that I, that I mentioned, only one of them cracked my honorable mentions, and it was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Ah, above Fallout. Right. Now, I I will be the first to admit this is not a perfect film. I kind of feel like it it loses steam toward the end of the movie. However, there are a couple of scenes in this film that are very iconic that will be remembered for a long time to come. 
The opening scene is probably my favorite from any of the opening scenes of any of the Mission Impossible uh, movies. It's a jailbreak scene. And then him scaling that building in Dubai left me with sweaty palms and was so intense and funny at the same time that that one tipped the scale for me as far as Mission Impossible movies go. In an age where we just assume everything is CGI, Tom Cruise is out there actually on the side of the Burj Khalifa. Right. But that that leads me into my favorite action movie of the 2010s. And forget action movie aside, when I did research and I went over my own lists and other people's lists, This is a film that was on the majority of these lists of the best of the 2010s. It's a film that Cole Wissinger does not care for, Mm -hmm. and I have only seen it once. I'm almost afraid to go back and watch it again because I, I don't know that I'll ever be able to enjoy it as much as I did the very first time I discovered 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. This is a film that doesn't seem like it should exist. And what I mean by that is while I was watching it, I couldn't, my mind couldn't process what I was seeing on the screen. I couldn't fathom how anybody, conscious or unconscious, could come up with what I was seeing on the screen. It is absolutely over-the-top, bonkers, so much fun that uh, I'm excited to watch it again someday, but I'm also a little worried but it's my favorite action movie of the 2010s, Mad Max Fury Road. I think you're tapping into what makes my next pick my next pick. Right? Okay. Movies can do something to us. Sure. And I wanted to reserve a spot for just the theater experience I enjoyed the most of the entire decade. The one that I ah. will never, ever, ever forget because movies can have this effect. Maybe not the most perfect movies of the decade, but I'll never forget sitting in an absolute quiet theater during A Quiet Place. Or I'll never forget the the kind of lead up to Inception before I saw that the yeah. first time. Or the follow up to Star Wars The Force Awakens and talking about it and going to see it time after time. You talked about seeing Mary Poppins Returns four times in the theater. My most appearances in the theater for 2010 went to Star Wars The Force Awakens, but more so than all of those, it was the way the MCU wrapped up their 10-year journey Ah. and really a decade that they've owned from the start with the first Avenger coming out in 2010, Avengers releasing in 2012, and when I saw Endgame this year in 2019, it went down as just the most memorable theater experience I've had. You just go in, you let it wash over you, and know that movies can do this. And yeah, there's like plot holes and there's other things <laughs> that make it not a perfect movie, but I am willing to put that aside for the experience that I had and just the emotional connection I had for the whole decade with those characters. Okay. Well, Cole... There's one more film that I want to talk about. No, I take that back. There are two films that I want to talk about because I neglected to mention this one earlier. 2018, this was an honorable mention. If the Lego movie was not the funniest movie of the decade, then it was certainly 2018's Game Night. Hilarious. A movie that totally threw me off guard. You watch the trailers and you remember thinking, okay, that looks kind of fun. But really, a movie about uh, a game night should not be as funny as it was. It is rated R, so if you can watch it edited, editing out some swear words, and it's not too adult in theme. 
and it was the second funniest movie of the 2010s. But now I want to talk about, speaking of surprises, I want to talk about, this isn't necessarily my favorite, but it is my last of my five favorites of the 2010s. And we are going back to something that Cole said earlier. Since 2010, Cole did not think there was another Pixar movie that was worthy of this list. And while I respect his uh, opinion, <laughs> I'm going to say that there was one other one that did that was worthy of my favorites of 2010s. This is a movie that probably one of the first Pixar trailers that be, and this is the beginning of this trend where I see a Pixar trailer and I think, okay, this looks really weird. I'm just, but Pixar, you've got a pretty good track record, so I'll just trust you on this one. Then I started seeing the reviews for this movie roll in, and I was floored. How could this weird-looking, bizarre movie have a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes? And yet, 2017's Coco completely surprised me, took me off guard. Who would have thought that Pixar could make a movie about family history? Pretty and much. And basically uh, have you reduced to a puddle of tears by the end of it. This was the award winner, the Academy Award winner for Best Animated Feature of the Year it came out, and also the award winner for Best Original Song in a very competitive year. It beat out This Is Me from The Greatest Showman. And uh, Coco is a film I hope to never forget, which is ironic because it is a film Remember about not me. forgetting. Right. Oh, I got to go back and watch that again with my kids. It's such a powerful film. It's been a great decade at the movies. You know, Cole, one thing I noticed on our... You kind of mentioned it in passing, but missing from both of our lists was uh, any mention of any of the Star Wars films that came out in the last 10 years. And they had a resurgence this decade. They sure did. And that's not to say that they were all bad, but... Some of them were. Some of them were, and uh, some of them didn't come out in 2010, so we can't really fault them for that. But when we return, Cole and I want to talk a little bit more about The Rise of Skywalker. Last week, we gave you a very squeaky clean, spoiler-free review. Didn't, we didn't even know what each other thought of it right. going into it. We were both it. in the dark on each other's reviews. So we're going to talk a little bit more about our feelings regarding The Rise of Skywalker, as well as give you a ranking, because why not? Everybody else is doing it, of all of the Star Wars films. And that's coming up next on Screen Cleaning. back to screen cleaning. Cole, you and I are here now to talk about the latest Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker. Before the break, we we wrapped up the 2010s decade by giving you our favorite films over the decade. Not an easy task. Over the past half of the decade, we've had a Star Wars every single year. Right. And yet none of those films made it in our, even our honorable mentions, Cole. 
And I think that's worth mentioning. That's very true. (laughs) Because Star Wars is such a cultural icon, I mentioned it in my small review last week that I do think that the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, and the comic book world has now overtaken the Star Wars world as the great franchise, the the great intellectual property in movies right now. Yeah. So let's first talk about The Rise of and Skywalker. It's, and it's because I think of the faults of The Rise of Skywalker okay. and, and the other Star Wars movies. So, Cole, I think you shared one word in your review of Rise of Skywalker that really captured the way I felt watching this final film in this franchise – And I read other reviewers that had this very same reaction, even wrote the same words in their own reviews. Really? Which was, meh. Yeah. (laughs) It was a shrug of the shoulders kind of a movie, right? Yeah. Not – I wasn't actively frustrated with it quite the way I was with The Last Jedi. And 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 I'm not sure if we can – we're going to have to talk about both. There's there's no parsing out these two different divisive Star Wars 8 and 9 – where I had actual opinions, I was strongly convicted about parts of eight, and then you know I was strongly anti other parts of it. Nine just kind of slipped by me. Right. So it almost seems like it's a bigger crime to be vanilla and bland than it is to be controversial and rattle the cages a little bit. Well, we'll see where they ah, compare in my rankings, okay. but I, I think you're onto something. So, yeah, for me, The Rise of Skywalker, although it brought back some characters that were intriguing from the original trilogy, um, I just, it really made me realize after three films with these characters, with the exception of Rey and Kylo Ren, I really didn't care for any of the characters, which is saying something because I think The Force Awakens really re-energized the franchise and got things going again with a bang. And you thought, okay, I'm really excited to see where they go with these characters. And other than Rey and Kylo Ren, the others don't ultimately go anywhere. And and I think, again, not to not to pile on to The Last Jedi, but Rey and Kylo Ren's part in that movie, their third, right? There were three kind of different storylines going on consecutively there, which is a common Star Wars thing. Like, that's not a narrative flaw inherently of The Last Jedi. But the Rey-Kylo Ren third is super strong. Every time they are on the screen, everything visually with the way that they are communicating back and forth, sure. especially their throne room battle, all all amazing But the other things going on just didn't contribute to the story. And I think when we lost Poe and Finn and Rose and Holdo and and all the other things that were going on in Last Jedi, it was impossible to kind of bring them back in the ninth one. Yeah. To me, while I was watching this film, I couldn't help but think of Return of the Jedi. If if J.J. Abrams was accused of making The Force Awakens too much like A New Hope— This one could certainly – the argument could be made that this was too similar to Return of the Jedi minus all the characters that you actually care about. The the fun of Return of the Jedi, right? Right. And honestly, the first kind of bit of the ninth movie is J.J. Abrams trying to remake Empire Strikes Back because he needs to shoehorn in the surprise I'm your father thing and he needs to like make the middle movie that he – probably would have made if Ryan Johnson hadn't, you know, actually been commissioned by Disney to make the middle movie. And then he got around later on to making the third one. Like, J.J. Abrams was stuck trying to make two movies in one, and it never flowed for me. 
Right. So if you're unfamiliar with the plot, you, it's probably likely that there are still some people that haven't seen this film, although it's made a ton of money. Uh, Palpatine from the original trilogy is back. And uh, you find out that he is trying to get Kylo Ren to uh, basically be his puppet. You kind sure. of find out that he's been the puppet master all along. And you find that's not too much of a spoiler because you find out in the first two minutes that this is the case. And, uh, yeah, so you have Ray and Kylo Ren butting heads again, each one trying to get the other to come over to their side, whether it be the the, the light side or the dark side. But all the good nuance from The Last Jedi, where we were talking about how, you know, Ray could be the last Jedi because we shouldn't have these labels on it, dark side and light side. Can we mm-hmm. not just be force users? Yes. Is gone. In The Rise of Skywalker, oh, yeah. we are just all the way back to, nope, there's a light side and a dark side, right. and we need to fight back and forth. And that, there was some discontinuity there for me too, Cole, because, yeah, one of the things I said I loved about The Last Jedi was that Adam Driver made a very convincing argument uh, against this idea of, no, forget about light versus dark. There's just Let's just start over, right? And, and people then, are Force-sensitive in this universe. Finn yeah. has moments in this movie, and and J.J. Abrams, in his true J.J. Abramsness, left us cliffhangers even after what is supposed to be a conclusion to mm-hmm. the series. Finn is constantly trying to bring something up to Ray during this movie, but he never gets to spit it out. And since the movie has been over, J.J. Abrams has said the thing Finn wanted to spit out is that he can feel the force too. But like, does that count? If you didn't actually fit it into your movie and make it matter. No, I don't think do it we, does. It, it's, it's so frustrating. Now, not to beat up too much on the rise of Skywalker, even though Cole and I felt meh about it, there were some characters in there and some moments that I thoroughly enjoyed. I love seeing the argument online about which is the better character, Baby Yoda from The Mandalorian or Babu, Babu Frick, Frick, who stole every scene that he was in. He's only in a couple of scenes, but he was kind of like this little tiny creature that brings to mind the Fonz from Happy Days because every time he'd be on screen, he'd be like, hey, in this really high-pitched voice. So that was good. I thought Carrie Russell's character was intriguing. They certainly could have done a lot more with that character. But again, it all comes back to Kylo Ren and Rey. I will say I thought of all of uh, Daisy Ridley's performances in these three films, this was my favorite of hers. I thought she gave a great performance. I'll agree with that. However, the biggest crime of all, I the biggest crime of all... The most intriguing character from any of these three films was set up in The Last Jedi. By It was uh, portrayed by Benicio Del Toro. He's kind of this guy with shifting allegiances and who is savvy. The kind of character that you shouldn't, even though on the surface he kind of looks like a nobody, just kind of a ragamuffin type of guy. He's somebody that you should not underestimate 
And uh, the good guys find that out the hard way. They certainly set it up like he's going to be in the next one. And there's no trace of him in The Rise of Skywalker, which is my least favorite thing about the movie. Until I listened to your review, I forgot that Benicio Del Toro was even in that movie. Not me. You you alluded to a character with with that description. And I had to talk to you after seeing the movie to remember who you were even talking about. Well, I didn't want to give it away. And and (laughs) to be fair, his character in... In The Last Jedi represented kind of the themes of things aren't always as they appear to be that Mm -hmm. was strong. I mean, again, Ryan Johnson, he had a vision. I don't agree with it and I don't agree with the way he like executed it. But he did at least have a vision, which is not something that I can really say for J.J. Abrams or at least that. It, that it ended up working. Like, maybe J.J. Abrams had a vision, but it certainly didn't include what happened in The Last Jedi, and so it seems really disjointed. All right, so I'm really curious now to see where these films rank on your list of all 11 of the Star Wars films dating back to 1977, the original Star Wars film. So let's just review them really quick. We have the movie that should and always, in my heart, will be known as Star Wars, Then there's The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. Then there is uh, uh, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, The Force Awakens, Rogue One, The Last Jedi, Solo, and The Rise of Skywalker. Chronologically speaking. Chronologically speaking, right? All right. I'll do mine first, and then you can just go through yours as well. And I'm going to start best to worst. Is that all right? Okay. And we're going to start with my personal favorite. People disagree, but Return of the Jedi was the one that I liked when I was a kid. Oh, as a kid, there's nothing better than Return of the Jedi. And specifically, uh, George Lucas did some weird things with the special edition. I love the way it ended, right? There's other things that he added during the course of Return of the Jedi. You can take it or leave it. But the ending and the score that adds to it as we kind of pan over the universe and how it's all affected by the fall of the Empire as opposed to just Wub Nub Ewok song to end it, <laughs> I think was a really, really good addition, maybe the only good addition to the the special editions. But Return of the Jedi is my favorite, followed by Empire, which is probably the one that most people consider to be the best, followed by The Force Awakens. Really? And then A New Hope after it. I know that J.J. Abrams gets accused huh. of remaking A New Hope, but you know... I liked his version better. I I admit to that. Okay, so those are the first four of the eleven, and then I think there's a gulf. I think that there's those are the four that I really enjoy and I think are good. Um, and then we get to the ones that have some problems. Mm. My next favorite is Solo. Okay. Then Rogue One, right? The two kind of side stories. Interesting. Okay. That went off. Um, Rogue One, my problem is I only really like a third of the movie, and it's the <laughs> very last third, and that very last third is very very good. The first two thirds, in my opinion, very, very bad, which is also my opinion on The Last Jedi, which comes next, where I love a third of it. And then two thirds of it, I think, is just really, really messy. Okay. Followed by The Rise of Skywalker number nine. Interesting. And then you have another gulf and it's the prequels or the, the bottom three. Personally, I go two, three, one. On my prequel preference, uh, I think Attack of the Clones has some cooler ideas in it than Revenge of the Sith and Phantom Menace. So I will say this, Cole. The latter half, I think the last part of this list, we have exactly the same. Okay. All right. 
it's just getting there is kind of messy <laughs> compared okay. comparatively similar speaking. to the story of Star Wars in general. Sure, yeah. So my favorite is the original Star Wars. That's so weird. It's so bad sometimes. So there, I can understand some of the complaints that people have about this movie with Luke being kind of a sniveling, whiny baby. Um, but this is the movie that introduces you to characters that you just fall in love with right off the bat. And it's interesting because even the way that Han Solo is introduced, they almost introduce him as if he has appeared in a previous film. They kind of just jump right in, which I think is really kind of gutsy for a movie that's supposed to be establishing these characters. You get a pretty good idea of who Luke is, his backstory, but uh, not even Leia as much, I feel. Um, you kind of just get thrown right into the action, and that's that's it's kind of constructed the way that a book is constructed. You don't you don't start out slow in a book. You start in the middle of the action, which is where Star Wars starts. You get thrown right into it, and I love it. I I don't think anything can quite compare to the um, to the scene at the end of Star Wars where Luke is flying in his plane trying to destroy the Death Star, and. Uh, yeah, for me, it's and probably always will be the original Star Wars that I will I refuse to call just as I refuse to go to Wendy's and order a chocolate frosty. Come on. I'm not going to call That's this one the frosty. I'm not going to call this one a new hope. It's just Star Wars, baby. The next one would be and my my list is probably going to be kind of boring to you, Cole, because it kind of goes in order both on the front end and on the back end because my next favorite would be The Empire Strikes Back. You have to appreciate this movie for just how heavy it is compared to the original that was just this this fun space adventure movie. This one is a little weightier and, you know, it's it's one where the good guys don't win. And how could you do that to us, George Lucas, right? The good guys don't win, but it introduces some more characters that you really grow fond of. You've got Lando Calrissian, who shows up again in The Rise of Skywalker. A little bit. But Yoda is one of the greatest Star Wars characters in any of the films. And I love the way that he is presented in this film as this kind of this eccentric, weird hermit that Luke doesn't want anything to do with until he finds out that this is the Jedi Master that he should be learning from. Exactly the way Luke ends up being portrayed in The Last Jedi. Yes, exactly. Wacky and goofy (laughs) and a joke. My next one would be Cole, and I'm right there with you. As a kid growing up, my favorite Star Wars movie was Return of the Jedi because it has everything in it that a little kid would want. This is basically the Happy Meal version of the Star Wars movie. It's got right? the biggest space battle. It's got the coolest forest scene. It's got the speeders. It's got the oh, Ewoks. Yeah. It's got... There's so much to love about it. And uh, my problem with this is that the people love Boba Fett so much when in actuality he's only in two scenes in, the, in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. <laughs> And he doesn't do anything of significance before he's immediately bumped off, right? But uh, those Ewoks are so lovable. And I love how Warwick Davis has played multiple roles throughout the Star Wars uh, franchise. 
And uh, I just, I loved Return of the Jedi as a kid. And it's really my third favorite and a great way, like you said, to end the franchise, the original, and what they thought would only be the only franchise. Right. And uh, even if it kind of gets a little similar to the original Star Wars in that Destroy the Death blowing Star up the again. Death Star again, right? After that, I think I think what you mentioned about mm-hmm. like it closes it. It George Lucas, and this comes back to my opinions on this newest trilogy, right? It, it gets a lot of flack for not having creative guidance, like having a plan to start with and sure. having different directors. Guess what? The original trilogy had all those same like right. quote unquote problems. George Lucas didn't really know where he was going to end it with the sixth one when he started. Four, five, and six had different directors. Lucas took the first one. Irvin Kirshner had the second one. Richard Marquand had the third one. But they all still ended up working together and not contradicting each other during right. the course of it. Right. So that's why it's probably going to irk you when I say that The Last Jedi is my next favorite. <laughs> the Last Jedi has moments in it that I think are so iconic. And really, the last time I've been to the movie theaters where there were at least three moments when people burst out into cheers. And uh, mm. that, and I will admit, not the my la- theater. <laughs> the last time I watched it, I recognized more of the flaws. However, there is just so much good in this film that I had to put it at number four. The next one would be The Force Awakens, which again just it it brought it opened this new franchise with a bang, got things going with high energy, some great camera work, and really fun characters. And uh, after that, it's Rogue One, a movie that should not have worked, but worked more than it didn't work. After that, it's Solo, which I wanted to like more than I did, but I did not leave the theater as much feeling meh as I did as The Rise of Skywalker. So we flip-flopped the two stories. I like Solo a little better. Right. You like Rogue One. But they're both like right next to each other in our rankings. So we're pretty close on these last four because I would then go Revenge of the Sith because it does set up the original trilogy pretty well, despite the groan-inducing no from Darth Vader. I, there are still just so many better ways to set up Vader's motivation than just he loved a girl that I guess died in <laughs> childbirth because of a broken heart, like, and that's what sure. caused him to want immortality. That's and, fair. I liked the innocence and and the ease of Attack of the Clones more than trying to shoehorn and get us all the way to well, we'll get there. A New Hope. We'll get there. The Rise of Skywalker would follow Revenge of the Sith. And one thing I noticed that I've heard other people say, too, I noticed this right off the bat. One thing that they couldn't seem to do well in Rise of Skywalker is forget, you know, the fact that he had to pick up where somebody else left off. They didn't take any time to slow down, develop the characters, or at least give you a reason to care about anything that was going on. J.J. Abrams just refused to slow down. And that's one thing that I thought Revenge of the Sith did well. You had that conversation between Anakin and Emperor Palpatine or whatever his chancellor, whatever his name is. And uh, so that's why it's a little bit under Revenge of the Sith for me. Then it's Attack of the Clones, which I really remember loving when it came out. But I have to admit, I don't know that I've seen it more than the one time. The dialogue is terrible. But even as even as a teenager, I I rolled my eyes every time they gave C-3PO another groan-inducing pun. 
He was full of puns that movie. And uh, yeah, I did love the Yoda lightsabers the, uh, scene that came at the end of the movie. But again, I'm sure if I went back and watched it, I would probably tear it to shreds. And then at the very tail end, The Phantom Menace. Last out of 11 on both of our lists. Mm-hmm. Well, the 2000s are over, Cole, and uh, not the a Star Wars. have been over for about 10 years, yes. but I get the point. Not a Star Wars film to be found on our best of the decade list, but that's okay. The, we, they've had a really good run. Disney owns them now, so they're going to keep making them. And there was one film that I neglected to mention from our honorable mentions. Well, I didn't neglect it. I purposely saved it for our Panning for Good segment, and that's coming up next. There's good in them dire hills. As you know, Cole and I, each and every show, like to end things with a bang by digging a little ec- or a little deeper to find that little golden nugget of goodness. And that's why we go panning for good. And these are the kind of good, heartwarming, heartfelt pieces from the media world and movies and TV that we've seen over the course of the week. Right. This is a little bit of a different pick for me, Cole, because you mentioned heartwarming. I certainly thought that there were moments of this movie that were very heartwarming. However, it is a World War II movie, and it is a film that I could see how it might be a little polarizing depends, depending on your sensitivity level. Some people are of the mindset that you should never make light of World War II and the Holocaust and the things that went on in Germany under Hitler, right? When I recommended this film to my family, that's how they felt. However, my wife and I have this as our favorite movie of the year, and it is of this year, 2019's Jojo Rabbit, directed by Taika Waititi. You may have a similar experience going to see this film, but just know, despite all the silliness and the farce that you're seeing as Hitler is being portrayed as a buffoon, whether or not you think you should laugh at that, there are moments that come up later in the film that I do feel are very heartwarming and that really tell a a message or that try to share a message of hope, share a message of forgiveness, and a message that, you know, we need to purge ourselves of hate in whatever format or whatever form it rears its ugly head. All of those emotions swirling up make me think of my favorite movie of 2019 as well and one that I held out of my top of the decade. And it's another one that that gets you to feel it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. The biopic of Fred Rogers portrayed by Tom Hanks that is still in theaters as well. When I think of the goodiest movies (laughs) of the whole decade, it's one that I saw just about a month ago and it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And, you know, just outside of my list for this decade too was the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? So something about Fred Rogers in the 2010s that people can't get enough of. And another good one that we always recommend, Paddington 2, was just that kind of heartwarming. As we wrap up the whole decade of of panning for the good, that one should get just a little honorable mention as well. 
Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. Cole and I are here each and every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on BYU Radio. Or whenever you want to listen to us on a podcast, whatever your favorite podcast platform is. We tried to ring out the old year with a bang, and we hope to ring in the new year with a bang as we share with you our favorites from the year 2019. That's up next week on Screen Cleaning.